through Ephesians in, in just a, a little bit. Uh, and you'll, you'll probably follow along a bit in your, in your Bibles as we go. Uh, but again, this is a survey, so we're moving very quickly and hitting the highlights. According to our custom so far, we've been talking about uh, the author, the date, uh, special considerations, doctrinal contributions, outline, and so forth, just to give you a leg up as you decide to study the scriptures of a particular book, and uh, just to get you more acquainted uh, quickly with each of the uh, books of the Bible. And yeah, but it's, I think we're actually going to move quite quickly uh, and be done through Revelation pretty soon. So there's not a ton of New Testament books compared to Old Testament. So, yeah. So why don't we do this? Why don't we stand and uh, we'll pray. All right. Well, Father, we love you. And uh, we're thankful for your grace, your goodness. And Lord, as Ephesians chapter 1 uh, is just this magnificent tribute to just the wonder of all that you've done for people, for your people, through your son and uh, by means of the, the cross, Lord, and his resurrection. And I just pray that uh, tonight that you would acquaint us further uh, with this epistle, which is amazing and powerful, and uh, that you'd help captivate our hearts with it. And so just teach us tonight, we pray. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Ephesians. Uh, most of you guys know where Ephesians is on the map, I'm assuming, in uh, western Turkey, uh, formerly Asia Minor. Uh, it's near the, the, the modern uh, city of Izmir. Izmir, and it's interesting, when you look at uh, the, the ruins of, of Ephesus, uh, Izmir is just kind of built around it, as, there are, as is the case in many places in Turkey and, uh, and Macedonia, Greece, Achaia, and all those places. It's just, it's really interesting to see ruins right next to everything. How many of you guys have been to Israel? A few, a couple of you, yeah. Uh, do you remember uh, artifacts being, laying? did you go out to Kisaria on the coast? Yeah. Do you remember seeing all the artifacts laying around, uh, pieces of, of columns, uh, the capitals, uh, things just, just scattered about in the desert. Uh, there's the, um, you know, parts of the port are still there. The, the, um, the amphitheater is there. Parts of the prison are there. Um, it's just very interesting. The aqueduct is just east, uh, outside, or of course, off the, the coast. I mean, in the coast just a little bit. And it's just like, who would leave that sitting there? Uh, it's just stuff everywhere. And uh, it's pretty amazing. But you can get on... The internet, of course, and you can just Google images of Ephesus, uh, images of Thyatira, images of whatever, and uh, you can just scroll through uh, all kinds of photography and the commentary and um, cool stuff. But anyway, uh, Ephesus was one of the, uh, the greatest port cities uh, in the Mediterranean. It was a 
center of commerce and trade. Uh, it was basically the gateway from the west and to the east, and um, important city, very important city. So as usual, we're going to look at uh, authorship, date, special considerations, doctrinal contributions, and then a very brief outline tonight. Um, so as far as the author goes, uh, of course, it's Paul. Uh, he's mentioned twice uh, in the book, uh, essentially as the author, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Ephesians 3, verse 1. Uh, he's identified by the earliest witnesses uh, of the church. We call them the early church fathers. Uh, men like Polycarp is one of the, the very first um, uh, early fathers to write. Um, and then Ignatius, also very early. Uh, and then all of the major fathers, fathers that follow in the next few centuries, they all maintain that Paul was the author. And then uh, one of the greatest early heretics of the church, uh, he actually uh, attributed uh, authorship to all of Paul's letters. He didn't dispute that, but then he waved off much of the other scriptures, uh, a man named Marcion. And then today, uh, most critics are in agreement that Paul is the author. Not that we care much about what they say, but uh, uh, it's, it's kind of fun when they agree with us. The date, um, most scholars would agree that it's about, it's between 60 and 62 A.D., uh, which puts it uh, pretty late. Uh, and when we talk about, I guess when I say late, I'm saying when we come to that threshold of 70 A.D. Of course, Paul died just previous, uh, a couple years before all that. Uh, and then the only author, apostle to write after 70 A.D. was John. And... Uh, so let's, some special considerations, things about Ephesus. Um, when, we, when we venture through the book of Acts, uh, we know that Paul's first missionary journey, he did a loop uh, and then made his way uh, uh, back uh, to Cyprus and then back to, um, um, I just lost it, Antioch, Antioch. But then later he went out, he, he checked in on the churches and then he began to push further and further west. And, but he was kind of on the, the northern edge of um, Asia. And he kept wanting to push southwest. And does anybody remember what happened on two different occasions? The Holy Spirit kept forbidding him. Uh, it's very interesting. It's the only time that the Holy Spirit forbid Paul to do something. Uh, but Paul, and, and I, I, I believe, I think it's very clear that that. What he wanted to do is he wanted to go to Ephesus because I believe he knew the potential that was in Ephesus. But I think the problem is if Paul had stopped in Ephesus, it's very possible that um, Macedonia could have been ignored. And uh, those were important cities along the Ignatian Way. And uh, so the Holy Spirit kept forbidding him to travel southwest into Ephesus and then pushed him across the Aegean Sea into cities like uh, Philippi and Thessalonica, Berea, and so forth, and then south um, into Athens, and then Corinth, Sancria, rather. And uh, so he went to all of those cities first, and, uh, and Ephesus had to wait. He finally makes it to Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 18, but he was only there briefly, and then he had to move on because he wanted to make the feast in Jerusalem, probably the Passover feast. And uh, that's Acts 18. 
he doesn't really get to Ephesus. Uh, uh, he doesn't really pitch his tent in Ephesus, as it were, until Acts chapter 19. And, uh, and then, he, of course, he remains there for uh, about two and a half years. And, and then what I think Paul already knew was what happened in Ephesus. Uh, it says that, and all of Asia, basically, had heard the gospel. And Paul, once he got to Ephesus, he didn't go anywhere. And so what was happening was these people that he was raising up in the faith, discipling in the faith, equipping, he was sending them out. And uh, it was very effective. So he was in the synagogue initially. And we know Paul, that's always the case with Paul. He's always in the synagogue initially. And then he's uh, thrown out or he's chased out, beaten. Uh, So he went and he started preaching in the pagan school of Tyrannus. Uh, and most um, early fathers said that he actually rented a space there during the heat of the day. Uh, and then he taught and discipled um, the believers there, which I think is a great thing to go into the heart of paganism, utilize its space, and, and rear people in the faith, missionaries, and, and so forth. And then, as Paul mentions in Acts 20, he was also in everybody's home. So he was preaching everywhere, all the time, as much as he could. And then the gospel went out. And uh, churches like Colossae were planted, which he never went to Colossae. Um, uh, churches like Laodicea. And I believe that it, it seems, the, the evidence seems to lead to this, that um, the churches that we find in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, um, those are probably churches that were planted out of Paul's work in Ephesus, okay, that big circle of churches in um, Asia Minor. So it was very effective. Paul didn't have to go to individual cities and plant churches. He just sent people out. And it was nice to reproduce himself and get other people doing the work. Also, Ephesus is known, uh, the, the Ephesians, rather, is known as one of the prison epistles, along with uh, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon prison epistles, at least the, for his first imprisonment. Okay, Second Timothy was probably written um, in his latter imprisonment. Uh, there's various reasons for that. Um, so this is the first imprisonment in Rome uh, after he was arrested in Jerusalem. Now some have argued, uh, I don't think very well, that he wrote from a prison in Ephesus. That there was a period, a possible stint that he was incarcerated there, uh, or that he had written from uh, Caesarea, we, call, we say Caesarea, it's, it's actually Caesarea, where he appealed to Caesar. But the, I just don't think there's evidence for that. It's in, in, in the prison epistles together, uh, which we're very confident he wrote uh, basically at the same time. He's talking about his imminent release. That's not the way he talks to Timothy. Okay, Paul says, I'm basically looking forward to my death. Uh, But in these epistles, he's looking forward to his release. He had the freedom to meet with friends. That's consistent with his first imprisonment. He had all this liberty to share the gospel. And then he refers to the palace guard and the household of Caesar. He probably wouldn't do that in Ephesus or in Caesarea. That that kind of gives us a uh, a place. He's in Rome. Um, Also, uh, Ephesians is very similar to Colossians. If you've read, read them back to back, uh, you find there's a lot of uh, repetition, there's a lot of similarity. But then when you take a closer look, you realize there's, there's some pretty major differences as well. 
The greatest difference being that the letter to the Colossians is an apologetic, rather what we would call a polemic. Uh, a polemic is guarding the church from um, bad doctrine within, and then an apologetic is addressing bad thinking outside. And uh, what had happened in Colossae was the church was infiltrated by heresy, uh, and it was coming up in their ranks, and so Paul writes the book of Colossians to address all of the problems that are in-house. That's a polemic. And, uh, but the letter to the Ephesians is about unity. Unity. That's the major theme uh, throughout the book of Ephesians. Unity, unity, keeping unity. And, uh, but then the similarities, of course, between Colossians and Ephesians is the exhortations. When we get to the instruction of the letter, uh, we see both books talking about the um, instruction to husbands and wives, children and parents and servants and their masters. Very similar uh, in all of that instruction. We could go on with all kinds of uh, special considerations. I don't want to do that. Um, my phone is on. Sorry. First time for everything at the bullpen, I guess. <laughs> Usually it's John Wiley and Jeremy Corwin texting me just to see if my phone is on. So in uh, the, that's what you're going to do from now on, Mike? You're going to text me? Uh, in, in this whole doctrinal contribution, what I'd like to do is kind of take you through the book uh, and kind of the flow of everything. And, uh, and I think that's probably the best way to introduce you to this. And, um, but when we talk about you know, the, the contributions of Ephesians, I wouldn't say that uh, the book of Ephesians introduces any new theology or doctrine to us necessarily. Uh, what is found here is stated generally throughout the New Testament. Uh, but some things I, I think are stated more, perhaps more clearly or emphatically in Ephesus. Uh, so nothing really new to introduce, but there's some clarity. Um, real quick, something to consider uh, when we engage with the doctrine and theology of the book of Ephesus. Uh, the church in Ephesus, like many of the other churches, uh, it was mixed, consisting of Jews and Gentiles. Okay? But uh, the, this letter uh, to the Ephesians was written directly to the Gentiles. When you look at Romans, Paul's like, He's addressing the Gentiles in chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. And then he addresses the Jews of the rest of chapter 2 and half of chapter 3. And then he goes back to addressing everybody again. And then he's back and forth through the epistle. Uh, not so with the book of Ephesians. He's, he's writing to the Gentiles. There's something that they need to hear. They need to be lifted up. They need to be directed. They need to have a better understanding of who God is, what he has done for them, and how he's continued to work in their lives. And uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting. But what we have to always understand in the historical context is that Gentiles, they always came out of paganism. You know, when we look at the non-believing world in the West, we don't think of them as pagans. Now, in, in a sense, they are pagans, but they don't visit a temple downtown and bow down before a statue that is grotesque or immoral by its very nature. That, that wasn't the case for the pagans uh, in the ancient world. Uh, they weren't just pagan, they were immoral. Okay? They did gross things uh, in their religion, in their culture, in their society, 
uh, society, rather. And in Ephesus was uh, Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, we find uh, her come up in the book of Acts because, remember, the, the coppersmith, he was becoming very frustrated with Paul because people were abandoning the, the worship of Artemis and they were turning to Christ. And he, and, and the coppersmith may not have cared so much about the religion, he, he definitely cared about his trade because what he did primarily was he built uh, little idols of Artemis. And being in a city of trade, of commerce, a port city and all of that, he was probably down at the market at the docks just selling these things like hotcakes. And, and more and more, he's selling less and less. And uh, so he creates this riot and things go uh, crazy there for Paul, as was common. It wasn't like a shock to him. Uh, this Artemis, or to the Greeks, Diana to the Romans, she was probably the most prob problematic thing about her. She was a goddess of fertility, which always bred immorality in the pagans. Anytime there was a goddess of fertility, there was all kinds of fornication and disgusting things, especially uh, with um, uh, the, the one in Corinth with Aphrodite. Uh, if you've seen images of Artemis, she's covered in eggs often as a symbol of her fertility. Uh, it's kind of weird. Uh, but anyway, uh, and then to kind of demonstrate the, I might say, the religious following of Artemis, uh, her temple was the largest temple in all of the Mediterranean. The largest. It was bigger than the Parthenon. Uh, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And uh, when we look at the history of Ephesus with Artemis, you can never separate the two. That's something in the culture. Okay? They were proud to be worshipers of Artemis. So Paul was really coming into strong enemy territory. And these people that had been raised up in the worship of Artemis, among other gods, that was in their culture. That was in their habits. That was in their lifestyle. It was a part of who they were. Suddenly they've come to Christ and then you cram them together in a community with Jews who have an aversion to idolatry, who have an aversion to their diet, have an aversion to their culture. It's just it's cramming all these different kinds of people together. That's some historical perspective, huh? Okay, yeah. Paganism. Um, and so let's, let's begin and start looking through the letter here. The, the section, verses 13 through, or I'm sorry, verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, it's my favorite section in all of Scripture, okay? And as you read it over and over and over again, you realize that Paul is, is really being theologically affectionate. I love this about Paul. Uh, how many of you guys have read Knowledge of the Holy from Tozer? Or maybe Knowing God from J.I. Packer? Uh, it's this worship uh, that flows out of good theology, out of doctrine, out of this, this solid understanding of who God is. And it becomes very devotional. Uh, it inspires you to, you know, doxology, uh, appreciation, thankfulness. And it's, it's filled with doctrine, it's filled with theology, but it's intended to, I, I would say, Paul's really wrapping his arms around uh, these Gentile believers and... Um, having in mind what they've come from. And so he begins by uh, talking about God's bountiful, heavenly blessing on his people. He has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, verse 3, choosing us 
specifically you, before the foundations of the world. Verse four, predestining us to be his children for his own good pleasure. Verse five, making us acceptable as his beloved. Verse six, providing us with redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Verse seven, causing his grace to abound toward us. Verse seven and eight, revealing the mystery of his will to us. Verse nine, lavishing his inheritance upon us. Verse 11, giving us the privilege to live for the praise of his glory. Verse 12, and then sealing us with the Holy Spirit of promise. And they know a lot of these terms uh, that Paul is using in their historical, which would be their cultural significance. A seal in a port city is very important, okay? Uh, the idea of the, the wax seal, uh, the wax being placed on uh, basically merchandise that has been sold to a rich merchant far away, and uh, uh, his servants live in Ephesus, say he lives in Rome, and he has all this stuff that they're to bring to the port and put on the ship. But in order for him to identify his stuff when it gets to Rome, it has to have a mark on it. And so it has this, this hot wax that has been dipped on his stuff. And then one of his servants presses a seal into it. So that when it gets to Rome, it's his. And Paul is using that term in a port city say that the seal of the Holy Spirit is upon you. When you move from this life to the next, you will be God's. He will see the seal of the Holy Spirit upon you. You're his. It's very sweet. Okay. And then this, of course, um, leads Paul um, in verse 13 through 14, I'm sorry, 15 through 23, uh, into this prayer for the Ephesians that they might understand the magnitude and the wonder of all that God has lavished upon them. So all this stuff that I've just said to you, he says, now I, I have to, to pray that the truth of this, the reality of this, that you would grasp it, that you'd understand it, so that it would then lead you into doxology. It would lead you into a life of godliness. I want you to draw close to him and experience his goodness and his grace. And... Um, and I think that what part of his intent there is that he wants to elevate God in the eyes of the Ephesians so that he transcends everything that they've come out of with Artemis. Make sense? She doesn't compare. She's nothing. Okay, she's nothing. And in chapter 2, uh, Paul then turns theologically another direction to speak of the, the spiritual deadness of the unbeliever which he's saying was the former state of the believer, verses one through five, okay? And that because of God's great love for us and by means of his, his abundant grace toward us, he made us, he says, alive together with Christ so that, this is what I love, he says, he's made us alive with Christ so that he could lavish more grace and more love upon us. More love and more grace, verse five through seven. Just Paul rejoicing in the good pleasure of God to just love us, that he would just freely give to us and give to us and give to us. And then Ephesians 2, 8 uh, through 10, uh, familiar passages. Paul talks about how we are saved and for what purpose we are saved. Now, of course, not the only purpose. 
He's already talked about much of that in Ephesians chapter 1, but here it's, it's, it's tacked on some more. We're saved by uh, his grace through our faith. Okay? That's how we're saved, verse 8 and 9. And we were saved to be more like God in this world as, as workers of good things. Okay? That's why we were saved, verse 10. We're created for good works. Now, to be clear, uh, we're not saved. Uh, God didn't save us because of our good works. Okay? He saved us by grace to make us a people of good works. A people of good works. Verse 10, we don't want to reverse the order. Um, I'm sure you guys have debated with people or shared the gospel uh, being very clear that we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace, uh, but we were saved that we might do good works. Uh, when you read the, the book of Titus, uh, Titus is all of this instruction to Pastor Titus to instruct his people to be doing good works, to be consistent with the God who is good. Amen? Okay, And then Paul goes on to describe that a part of this good work requires unity and peace between Jews and Gentiles. <laughs> it's a good work to have unity in the fellowship. Amen? It's a good work. Okay. So the reality that Paul talks about is that in Christ, we're all one. That's verses 11 through 22. In Christ... We're all one. But in order for believing Jews and believing Gentiles to realize that truth and experience it, they had to strive for it. It doesn't come automatically, does it? You got saved and you're just instantly unified with all of your Christian brothers and sisters. Is that how it happened? No. No, it's a reality that in Christ we're all one. But it takes work for that to become, to, to be realized, to be experienced. And um, yeah, Paul concluded that way in chapter four, verse three, but that's jumping ahead, we'll get there. In chapter three, one through 13, uh, Paul talks uh, about the hidden mystery of the gospel of Christ. The hidden mystery of the gospel of Christ. And he explains that mystery as the Gentiles, that is non-Jews, would be fellow heirs with the people of God. That's the mystery. Uh, this has been called the dispensation of the Gentile, okay? Uh, that is that the redemptive grace of God was extended beyond the Jews to include the Gentiles. Now, that's not saying that Gentiles uh, were never incorporated into, say, the nation of Israel in the, New, in the Old Testament, or that some didn't come to faith in the God of the Old Testament, or the God, rather, the God of the Bible. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is an example of that. But... The, the redemptive grace of God as far as being broadcasted, that's never in the Old Testament. It's not until we come to the New Testament. Paul says that, that his grace would be broadcasted. He said God knew about it in the Old Testament and nobody else really fully understood. We, when we talk about a mystery, the mysterion in the, in the New Testament, we're not talking about like a murder mystery where we're, we know something's up and we're trying to figure it out. No, a mystery in the scriptures is something that is concealed by God, and then he later reveals it. Okay? And that's what Paul is saying. This mystery has been revealed uh, through the preaching of Christ uh, to the Gentile. 
And then Paul again, he, he says, I'm praying for you that all of this stuff would make more sense to you. Okay? The mystery uh, that's, that's through Christ Jesus, verse 14 through 21. And then we move to chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Uh, Paul again addressing Gentiles, reminding them that we should walk worthy, that they should walk worthy, and we should as well, of their calling. And he and, and this whole thing is in the context of unity with the Jewish believers that they fellowship with. And he says, this whole thing has to be tackled in humility, in gentleness, in long-suffering, loving one another, endeavoring always to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's work, and it's a lot of work. When you bring different kinds of people together, different cultures, all of that, it requires work, okay? It's just a collision of different ways of thinking, different ways of doing things. And I'll tell you, when you mingle Jews and Greeks, you have two unyielding cultures. You have two people groups that are essentially racist. <laughs> and they think that they're superior, both of them. And that when you come together, and the Jews coming out of the Old Testament... You think they felt like they had a leg up on the Gentile? You can bet they did. Okay. So there's all of this conflict that they need to work out. Some coming from Judaism, some coming from paganism. And now they have to find their unity, their identity in Christ, rather than what they came from. They can't find it from their people anymore. They can't find it from their culture, or their religion, or even their race and so Paul reminds them in verse 4 through 6, he says that we were called into one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, one faith, one baptism, that's the baptism into the faith, and one God, the Father. Did you notice that the, the, it's a creed, isn't it? It's a statement of faith, but it's explicitly Trinitarian. It's Trinitarian, Okay. He's, he's expressing that everything merges at the Trinity, the one true God, from whom, he's telling us, we adopt our identity and to whom we surrender our will. When we come to Christ, when we come to the God of the Bible, we exchange our will for the will of God. Now that must happen if there's going to be unity. Everyone has to do it collectively. Okay? His will must become the will of our lives. We cease being what we were, and we become something new, as Paul says to the Corinthians, a new creation. Uh, but instead of merging, we often meander, don't we? We, we venture off. And uh, So uh, you guys, I'm sure, well, I know Gabe does, and Roger does, and a few other people, but um, you know, when we look at you know, popular trends within Christian culture, Today And it's, I think it's probably been going on since the 80s. Uh, and that is the idea that everything is about the church being relevant. Being relevant. Making God relevant. Making the church relevant. Making Christianity appealing and pleasing to the culture. Um, have we seen the fallacy of that in the last, I would say, since the 1980s? And I think that what we failed to do is we failed to to talk about the necessity of people becoming relevant to God. 
becoming relevant to him, who Paul says in verse 6 is above all things, all things. Uh, Sin and pride, um, it's just the truth. We always want God to conform to us. We want him to be relevant to us, appeal to us, to be like us. But every time that humanity has done that, without exception, it always leads to idolatry and it leads to self-service. It leads to humanism. It's just another way of fashioning God after our image. And the scriptures constantly tell us that when we come to Christ, we are to be being conformed into his image. God in our image is an idol. It's destructive and it never ends well. And it's something that we have to always fight against. It's bad stuff. Um, Time has, I think, told the story well, but I don't think the church has learned its lesson well enough. And it's because of that that the church becomes more like the world. It becomes more liberal in its theology. It becomes very liberal in its practice. And it just deteriorates everything. So, yeah. But we don't have any preferences, do we? Like music and philosophy of ministry and home groups, everything. And um, anyway, unified the way that God intended. Diversity, unity. Isn't that what marriage is kind of about too? Diversity coming together in unity. Uh, The church coming together, diversity and unity. Um, When I meet with couples that are struggling, um, it's always interesting because I see that in the one person, um, they have all of these skills that the other person doesn't have. And then that person has all of these skills that the other person doesn't have. And uh, they become critical of one another for not having the skills that they possess themselves. And it's like, well, why don't you guys capitalize on the skills of each other and then complement one another so that you can move forward? And uh, that's just the facts. And when, when we get to uh, texts like this, and then uh, later on in Ephesians 4, as Paul talks about everyone contributing, doing its share, doing its part, that's diversity, everybody having different gifts. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and, uh, and 14, God takes all of these different things and he brings them together in one body so that we can complement and and be more productive, be more successful for his glory. And uh, so I, I love diversity, and uh, the faster you recognizes, recognize the advantages of it, um, we can do more things together as a family, as a body of Christ. And, um, and instead of being intimidated by the gifts that other people have, uh, you begin to celebrate that and then employ it into the service of God. And, you know, it took me, I think it takes all young men especially, Maybe it's just young men that are wired like I am. But you go from being intimidated by the gifts and skills and talents of others uh, to going, why am I doing that? And so what I've you know, done, uh, hopefully not too late, is to ask God to reveal all of my weaknesses uh, so that I can fill those weaknesses with people that have those skills. And that's actually how I appoint elders, is I look at the needs that I have and the needs of the church, uh, and then of course 
the elder has to be biblically qualified, First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, but then they also, I don't need any redundancy. I need guys that can fill the void and get this machine moving forward for the glory of God and for the, the better of his people. And so I seek after diversity now, whereas before I was like, well, I got to handle all this. And um, I didn't want people to rise up. Uh, just, I don't know, I guess it made me look bad, which is really foolish and proud. But anyway, unity and diversity, good stuff. Um, and so in chapter 4, Paul uh, says that he's, uh, God has provided certain giftings uh, so that we can uh, take all of this stuff and use it for the glory of God. So uh, in verse uh, 7 through 16, but specifically verse 11, Paul talks about the function of the purpose of apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers. And there's two things here specific that, that really move in the theme of Ephesians. Uh, he says, equipping the saints, edifying the saints, number three from verse 13, till we all come together in the unity of the faith. And then he says, and the knowledge of the Son of, the, of God, conforming to the Son of God. And then the last one, number six, till the church edifies itself in love. Now, if the church is divided, it can't do that. Okay? And if the church isn't utilizing all the gifts that God has placed in the fellowship, the church can't edify itself in love. Remember, all of the gifts are for what? Edification. But if I'm not exercising my gift or I'm not free to exercise my gift, the, the body is hindered because of that. There's a lack of unity. There's a lack of productivity. Okay, So good stuff. So love, unity. Uh, sadly, it's often the great omission in the church's mission. Okay. Um, all right. What else? And then um, Ephesians 4.17 all the way through chapter 6 uh, is a call to the Gentiles to abandon all of their ties to their former lifestyle and strive by the grace of God to live according to the gospel. Uh, and as we mentioned in the beginning, that's in family, husband and wife, children and parents, um, and masters and their servants. Every context of life um, is to be a gospel life. And of course, there's the section on standing strong in the armor of God so that we might do those things well. All right, let's hurry and get through the outline. My time, I got about six minutes. It's not an out, a long outline. Uh, as usual, can you read the small print? I forgot to mention, I since the update, I have all these new slides that I get to choose from, and Roger loves these generic-looking slides. Do you remember in the 80s, you go to the grocery store, and like in the cereal section, there'd be a white and black box? Do you remember those? Yeah. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's back. It's back. Look at that. It's legible? All right. It's these slide snobs. So Norman Geisler, I stole this outline from him. Uh, I like his. They're, they're pretty easy to memorize, uh, usually pretty easy to follow. Uh, but I want to take that for granted completely. He divides the book into two things. Uh, that is positional, uh, doctrine, 
the position that we have in Christ, and then practical, which is always godly living. Okay? Is that Mike? How embarrassing. <laughs> okay, uh, so real quick, this, what you see here is this division in Paul's letter. It's actually uh, how almost every one of Paul's letters are divided. We always begin, he always begins with doctrine, and he ends with duty. Because our, our duty must have a foundation to it. Okay, why are we doing this? Why is this necessary? For what purpose is this? How do we do this? Uh, what does it all uh, coalesce with? All, all of those things. So it's always the foundation of, of theology and doctrine, truths about God, truths about what Christ has done for us. And then because of those things, we have the implications. We have duty, we have practice, we have lifestyle, things like that. So our position, chapter one through three, practical, uh, godly living, chapters three through six. We'll just look at them real quick. You may have noticed when we went through uh, that first section in uh, Ephesians chapter one, uh, we have this whole discussion over and over about the foreordination of God, the predestination of God, his choosing us, his calling us. Um, that's the source. And he's called uh, this altogether the church. We might say chapter one predestination for ordination. All, he says, done before the world was created. Now, this is not a Calvinistic thing. Um, I've, I've had people come to the church and say, you don't believe in all that predestination stuff, do you? I say, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's in the Bible that God predestined us. You know, Ephesians chapter one, Romans chapter eight, uh, you know, Peter says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Election, predestination, all of this stuff. It's not Calvinistic uh, thing. It's a biblical thing. Uh, we can't get around the reality that God chose us in advance. Uh, it doesn't preclude that, that, uh, that we believed in him. It just means that he was preemptive. He moved first. And if he did not move first, we would not have moved at all. Okay, so this fighting against uh, the predestination election is really silly uh, because it's primary in the theology of, of uh, the scriptures, okay? Uh, it's not new, just New Testament either. Paul, uh, um, God says to Jeremiah, I, I knew you in your mother's womb. I called you. I fashioned you, okay? Uh, John the Baptist, all the same principles, okay? Uh, and how we work that out with faith uh, is for another, another day. But it's there, we have to wrestle with it. But I'm thankful uh, that God moved first. You know, Jesus says, nobody comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. And it didn't happen uh, minutes before you got saved. Okay, it's, it was going on. And uh, he had predetermined to do that before the creation. Praise God that he did that. Okay. And then uh, Geyser goes on to say the result, of course, was sinful man being reconciled to God and that by means of this reconciliation, both the church in a corporate sense and the believer in an individual sense became the temple of God. Now, there's a couple words for temple. We've talked about this before. There's the whole temple complex. That's the, the uh, theon in the Greek. But then there's naos, 
which is the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies of the temple. Paul never uses theon when he talks about, uh, about us. We're not the temple complex, okay? We're actually that place in which God dwells, the, the naos, okay? Where the, the mercy seat was the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, we are the naos of God individually and collectively as his people. Pretty crazy stuff. Um, he says that this plan of God was a mystery, uh, something, as we said, unknown in the Old Testament, and that was the mystery of the calling of the Gentiles who were formerly excluded as a people group. And then he's saying that together the Jews and the Gentiles now make up the household of God, the family of God. Uh, only God is crazy enough, and I, I mean that respectfully, to bring all of these differences together in one community and make it work. And if we are diligent uh, by his grace, it doesn't just work, it, it functions so beautifully. Um, yeah, certainly an abbreviation of all of these different theologies. And then uh, quickly moving to practical, uh, it says walking in unity, walking in holiness, walking in love, uh, walking in light. As we said before, unity is really um, stands out as primary in the practical section of Ephesus. Uh, theologically, we've been called as one in Christ. Practically, we're to walk as one in Christ, okay? Um, yeah. Now, I think that what Christians have done in the past is uh, a fault of our own is that we've sought unity for the sake of unity, when uni unity should only be had uh, when it's founded on the gospel. If truth is not the, the, the reason for it, it should never happen. So there are good reasons for separation. But sadly, I don't think it's for good reasons uh, that the church has separated uh, in the past. It's just for really, really um, immature stuff. Um, he talks about uh, unity, holiness, love, and light, all very interesting concepts. Uh, light is always a symbol of, of uh, truth, so truth is at the heart of everything. Uh, holiness and love always result in Christ-likeness, uh, none of which can be had without, or unity cannot be had without them. And he says also walking in wisdom. Uh, when you bring multiple cultures together, multiple people groups and all of that, um, you gotta have some wisdom, okay? You remember in Acts chapter six, we have... Uh, Hebraic Jews, and we have Hellenistic Jews. Jews raised in Israel, Jews raised in Greek culture. But they were still Jews. And when they came together in Jerusalem, after receiving the gospel, it was not an easy road, was it? There was all of these problems. And so what the disciples did was they, they went to prayer. Okay? And uh, they had to seek God's wisdom in regard to, to, as to what to do. We need God's wisdom when it comes to bringing different kinds of people together. Otherwise, we'll just end up more divided. And history has told that story too many times. And then uh, finally, not finally, the conclusion is final, but uh, the end of his, uh, his exhortation is this whole thing about the armor of God, uh, which he basically says, put it on, keep it on, and use it all the time. And I went three minutes past. So... That's Ephesians in a nutshell. Uh, I have never taught Ephesians verse by verse. Um, 
that will be fun. We're doing uh, Galatians shortly on Sundays. Uh, and then I'll actually go to, I believe, a gospel. And then I'll come right back to Ephesians. And it'll probably be about six years from now. So. All right, why don't we stand up and we'll pray. If you have any questions about uh, the book of Ephesians, please ask. Well, Lord, I, I am so thankful for the book of Ephesians. Lord, it's content and it's historical context. Uh, the kinds of things that you've done through Christ and the kinds of things that we can do together in Christ is amazing. And, and we're here today because of all that was done in Christ through the gospel. 2,000 years removed from the first time the gospel was preached uh, to a Gentile audience. Lord, so amazing. But Lord, certainly the church today has lost sight of many, many valuable truths that are in the book of Ephesus. And Lord, we need to return to your word. We need to get our feet grounded in good theology, good doctrine, so that then our practice would come out of that that we would think clearly, soberly, and that we would act rightly. And uh, so, Lord, with that in mind, I do pray for Calvary Chapel here locally and globally. I pray for your church universally, Lord, that we would, we would return our gaze upon the scriptures and that you would unify us around all that we should be unified uh, for and in. And uh, so shake us, wake us up as the church is being divided as we speak over things that should not be divided over. And uh, so Lord, help us, we pray. And Lord, I thank you for my church family. I pray that as we looked at in chapter one, that you would lavish all of these wonderful things upon them, uh, and as you have rather, but that Lord, as Paul prayed, we would grasp more and more day by day the magnitude of those things and that it would cause our hearts, Lord, to worship you, to be devoted to you. And then, Lord, that we would be useful for your glory outside of the church walls. So, Lord, we, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Lord bless you guys.